Hi there, friends. I am glad to be with you all. Um, thank the Lord for our church and giving us an opportunity to continue to be together and to worship. Today's, this is truly the highlight of my week. It's when I can be with fellow believers. We can encourage one another. We can share our burdens. We can ask for prayer. And most especially, we get to enjoy um, praising the Lord together. Well, um, today's section of God's Word in Timothy is about discernment. You know, in the previous weeks, we've been talking about false teachers and wrong teaching infiltrating the church and how even very subtle changes can be anti-gospel, right? Very little, little adjustments to the truth can be untruth. And that's what Paul's really warning Timothy and the church at Ephesus about, and certainly us. By the way, we are so susceptible to this because the Christianity that's out there in the world, for the most part, it's mostly non-gospel. It's mostly anti-Christian. It's just a semblance of truth. Like Martin Luther says, right? All mischief begins in the name of God. So they use God a little, use His Word a little, and then twist it, and then do what they want with it with all kinds of mischief and their own agendas. And that's dangerous. You know, that's why it is so important to hear God's Word for what it is. That's why it's so important to have the reading of the Word. And for you to listen to the Word. And then you, for you to hear the Word preached. And then to evaluate, is that right? Did that sound like what God was just saying? Or is that something else altogether? And that's why our church does what it does in the way that we do it. And I pray that all churches do that. You know, I, I hate fakes. I've told you this about that car that I bought. And how irritating it was when I thought I bought a Honda and the mechanic says, sorry, you got an Isuzu. Well, I think cars are evil. <laughs> I had another problem this week. I guess new cars aren't evil, but old cars are definitely evil. I had another car that wouldn't start. And so call the mechanic, call AAA first. He said, it's not your battery, it's your starter. Okay, so got the first starter replaced. Mechanic calls me and says, yeah, it worked three times and then the fourth time it wouldn't start. So we're going to try to put another starter. Okay, so second starter says, this one's a little better. It should work. It seems like it's working. So I picked it up and brought it home. Guess what? Every other time I start the car, it doesn't start. You know what I found out? I called the mechanic. I talked to him for a while. And he said, I hate to tell you this, but your car company, the one who made that car, has a proprietary spring in their starter that all other starters on the market are not allowed to have. So, it'll start sometimes, but without that spring, it won't start every time. So, you know what? 
It's better to go with the original thing if you can find it instead of having to go through multiple starters. So I'm still on that starter, by the way. But the best thing would have been if I actually bought the original part, the original, the OEM part from that car company because then every time I press the starter button, it would start. Now it's every second time or every third time. So listen, do me a favor. Just buy the original part, okay? You're welcome. That's my advice to you about the real and the fake stuff. But this passage is about discernment about the fakes, again. And it actually gives us a bunch of warnings that Paul's telling Timothy about because it can look and sound like the real thing, but it may not be the real thing and it's going to cause a lot of damage. You know, I, I, I kind of joke around about the car thing, but it's a headache. You're out hundreds and hundreds of dollars every time you have to replace and it takes time and energy to drop it off and pick it up and all these kind of things. Listen to what Jesus' words say in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, and then we'll pray. Jesus actually had a lot to say about false teachers and none of it is good. And so he says in Mark 13, 22, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. Those are Jesus' words about falsehood, false teaching, false teachers. And by the way, can I tell you, church, there are often wolves among the sheep, even in the church. Did you hear what I said? There are even wolves among the sheep, disguised. They might even bleat like the sheep, but they're wolves because they're in disguise looking to devour and kill. So bear Jesus' warning and Paul's warning to us. We'll go into this a little further, but let's pray. Father, I ask that you would truly, Lord, give us um, your wisdom from above and discernment to be able to see the real from the fake, especially when it comes to the truth of your word and those who teach your word, that we would be protected from false prophets and false teachers and all kinds of evil that is against your gospel. Lord, forgive us when we even swerve away from the center of your truth. Lord, protect us and our church. Thank you for this section of your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you four points to kind of hang some ideas on. The first is this. We're indeed in the last days. By the way, what does that phrase mean to you when you hear the last days? We'll come to that. Secondly, verses 2 to 5, a picture of what false teachers are like. The infiltrators, the intruders that in, hurt God's church. What are their characteristics like? What do they look like? Thirdly, verses 6 and 7, the tactics of the false teachers and it's what they do. So that's the third section. And fourthly, verses 8 and 9, the last two verses of our section, it gives an example of two teachers, again, for us, very specific ones that Paul names, and then a word of assurance, a promise for Timothy and for us to hold on to. So the first 
I want to talk about is um, we're indeed in the last days. You know what the last days uh, um, give this connotation to those of us when we hear that? We kind of think of those days that are coming just before Jesus returns. You know, it's not now. It's going to come. It's going to be, you know, like a, a, a treacherous, evil time before Christ returns for us. But that's actually not what the New Testament writers show us. This is what Acts two sixteen to 18 says. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even upon my bond slaves both men and women i will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy you know who's saying this the apostle peter on the day of pentecost so right after jesus's ascension and he's saying in the last days the Spirit will be poured out on all mankind and sons and daughters shall prophesy. That's what happened. So the last days began after the ascension of Jesus and will continue until His bodily return. So that includes Timothy and Ephesus. That includes us. And all of church history between His ascension and His return. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? He says, by speaking of how God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets at many times and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. So my friends, when Paul's talking about the last days, it's for us. Don't think it's hundreds and thousands of years away when Jesus is going to return and that's when it's going to be really bad. So Paul is actually telling Timothy to be warned about his own time, his own church, and those around him. And he's not speaking about something that was far removed that's going to be hundreds of years away. How do I know this? Look at when he says in verse 5, avoid such men. Paul's telling Timothy right now, right here in this church, avoid such men, Timothy. Not hundreds of years later right now. So then Paul goes into a list. There are some 18 or 19 things that I could count up that are characteristics of falsehood. That's my second point, a picture of what false teachers are like. These infiltrators that try to hurt God's truth. What are they like? What do they look like? Notice the qualities or characteristics listed. And um, I think... You know, what I'd like to do is go through them quickly just so that you can hear them again. But please read these on your own again because we may have falsehood in our church. And you need to be able to discern and identify these and say, hey, could, could this be true of us? Could this be in us? Could this be in our church? Or These are qualities that I think you need to look at. Have you ever heard this little um, reason test, it goes like this. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. It's a reasoning test. 
that um, tries to identify an unknown subject by observing that subject's habitual characteristics. So Paul gives us a list of characteristics that if a bit habitual, are real warning to us. It's to say, this is falsehood. This is false truth. And it's not okay. So I brought something. I know Pastor Jeff says we don't often do object lessons, but every once in a while it's fun, right? So this is a plastic ball. It's used to play baseball. Jude, what is this? It's a wiffle ball. See, see the way that this one's made? The holes are actually only on one side. The other side is not. And a wiffle ball goes along with a wiffle bat that is yellow in color and it's very thin. It's not a big fat bat. My brother and I have spent thousands of hours playing wiffle ball in our backyard. If you came to me and said, let's play some wiffle ball, I'd be like, yeah, I love wiffle ball. I'll do it. I can still hit a ball. Jude plays with, we have several wiffle bats and balls at home. If you blindfolded me and said, here's a wiffle ball, and I could feel that thing, I could tell by the material it's made out of, whether it's a wiffle or if it's not. Because there's a lot of plastic bats out there. And they can be yellow, and they can look like the bat, and they can look like this ball, but this is actually made of a special kind of plastic to make it fly the way it flies and to be thrown the way it's thrown, the way it carries. And not everything is the same. I can actually feel the material in my hands and tell whether it's a real wiffle ball or a, wheel, or, or a real wiffle bat and when it's not. Paul gives us a list to actually look at one another and say, hey, do these characteristics show up in our lives? Here's a way to be discerning. First, I want you to notice four different times in which we, we see the word love used in this description. Verse, chapter 3, verse 2, lovers of self. Chapter 3, verse 3, unloving. Chapter 3, verse 4, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. And this tells us something of the characteristics. And you know, it can be summarized in a, in a big overarching question. I love this question. We talked about it in the book of James when we were covering the book of James. What do you love? Because we do what we do because we love what we love. Do you remember that? We do what we do because we love what we love. And Jesus says that the entire law could be summed up in two commandments, love God and love others. So I'm going to give you some of these characteristics and go through them somewhat quickly. And they're in five sections that Paul gives to Timothy. First is in a section that I would say, let's, let's define it as like the motivation behind falsehood, false teachers. First is men will be lovers of self self-lovers. And it's, you know what that is? It's a quality about selfishness. It's um, when we put ourselves in charge on the throne, we are king, we are master. And it leads to all the other sinful attitudes. Do you remember, do you remember in uh, Genesis chapter 3, 5, when, um, when Satan 
the appeal, the, the appeal to which Satan made in the garden. So Satan told the woman, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what was that? That was her being tempted to be like God, to put herself on the throne. It's a manifestation of Eve falling into this sin of self-love. When we begin to put ourselves above God, that is selfishness and it is self-love. That's the first thing. Second quality is lovers of money. You know, are we a culture and a people that's obsessed with money? Especially here in the West, especially here in America. It's like, how can we one-up each other? How can we, you know, get the last possible dollar made? 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by looking for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So it doesn't actually say money is the root of all evil, but it does say the love of money is evil. And it's not long before our attention is on making more and more of it and not on our faith. Because money takes the place of God for many people. We begin to put our security in it. We begin to put our hope in it. We begin to put our trust in it. It's an idol. Enough said. I think you understand where the danger is with becoming lovers of self and lovers of money. I think we especially are in America are prone to this. Secondly, let's look at the attitudes of false teachers. The first thing that I'd like to point out is being boastful. The boastful person is, is somebody who's always speaking about themselves, right? They call attention to, their self, to themselves to elevate themselves. And what's the opposite of a boastful uh, individual? You might think it's being quiet. It's not. You know what biblically would be the opposite of being a boastful, self-elevating person? Is someone who boasts in him. It's somebody who's not just quiet and humble, but actually is boasting in the Lord. We read that this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we call attention to God and seek to elevate the Lord instead of ourselves. The next characteristic, chap- characteristic chapter 3, verse 2, is arrogant. And arrogant really comes from two Greek words that mean to shine above or beyond. And what it basically means is everyone that attempts to make themselves look good and putting others down, to shine beyond and above everyone else. That's arrogance. Do you know teachers who are that way? You know, well-known teachers, celebrity teachers, celebrity pastors, celebrity Christians. Sometimes you see that in them. Next, chapter 3, verse 2, revilers. And it literally means blasphemers. And it describes somebody who speaks evil against others. Um, not even just against God, but even against others. A false teacher may go out of his way to speak evil about others, and that's completely wrong. That's, that is a characteristic of, of falsehood, of being a false teacher. 
Next, he goes into this section that I would say the inadequacies or the lackings of false teachers, and there's a whole bunch of them, okay? And I'm going to go through them quickly, but I want to point something out to you. Every one, except every single one in this next section, except one, has a prefix ah to the word, which is equivalent in our English language to, to the word non or und. So, for instance, obedience. Well, non-obedience. Grateful. Well, non-grateful. And so all of these except one are described that way. The first is disobedient to parents. This is a violation of the fifth commandment, isn't it? Where we're called to honor our father and our mother. Um, And it doesn't stop when you grow up and when you leave the house. You know what disobedience to parents eventually becomes disobedient to those in authority. Disobedience to those whom God has set up in authority. Disobedience to structure and the way God has put society together. And so disobedience to parents goes a long way if it's not corrected. Let me move on. Ungrateful. This comes from the root word for grace, charis. But the Greek word, when it negates it, it actually is the opposite. It's not gracious. It's not grateful. Unholy, the next one. He doesn't only break God's law, but he even breaks human laws. Unholy, unloving. It is described, the Greek word describes natural human affection, but its negative form is used in the New Testament to show unloving, unloving attitudes. Next, irreconcilable. This is description of somebody who refuses to reconcile. Have you ever met somebody like that? You know, um, I think the word that we read is unappeasable. Um, It's somebody who has a chip on their shoulder maybe and refuses to forgive, refuses to forget. They, They won't reconcile. There's no chance of reconciliation because of their attitude. Next, gossips, malicious gossips. This is an interesting one because I think it hits at this word that we know called slander. And this is a very important word for all of you, church, to hear and recognize. This word is diaboloi. Does that sound familiar to you? The singular form of it is used to describe diabolos, the devil. And it means to slander. And this is where the devil gets his name. He is the ultimate slanderer of God's word. And his, um, his way is to gossip and to slander and all those who follow in his steps are of the devil. Next, self, without self-control. Um, this word actually describes power and might. So go the opposite. Not powerful, not mighty. And it's that when someone thinks that they're powerful, but without God, they're not, are they? The next one, brutal. I found this one interesting. Verse, chapter 3, verse 3. The word actually, I think, leads to where we get the word animal from. 
Do you know that that word in Greek actually means to tame? But when you have the negative form, it means not tame, brutal, not tameable. Do you know people like that? Haters of good, no love for good. I'm going to read to you John 3.19 says, The light is coming to the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Haters of good. They want to dwell in the darkness. The next section is actually interesting because it talks about these false teachers and their madness. You know, there's actually a recklessness to false people and false teachers. There's a recklessness to their lives that leads them in destructive ways. And you might be able to notice that. We need to be discerning of that, of people who, you know, kind of have the truth, but then they twist it. But you see some destruction happening in their own lives. There's a traitorous recklessness to it. The first one is treacherous. And you know where we see this word treacherous? It describes Judas Iscariot in his treacherousness in, in um, betraying Jesus as the traitor. The next word is actually the word reckless. And it means, um, it describes somebody who um, falls headlong into a style of living that is fraught with recklessness. And the next, we have the word conceited. It describes someone who's out not only to fool others, but even fools themselves because of pride. Have you ever met people like that? You know, they're so prideful, they're so conceited, that they're actually not just tricking others anymore, but they're actually tricking themselves. They've made themselves think that they're something else because of their pride. Last section is about their relationship with the Lord. And this kind of, let's say like this, that maybe the spirituality that goes along with false teachers. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what this points out to us is that this is in contrast to being lovers of God. You can't do both. Either you love God and you recognize God as being God or else you love yourself and you elevate yourself. And then it talks about holding to a form of godliness although they've denied its power. You know, I've known people like this. They look like Christians. They sound like Christians. They show up at church or small group or other things. They have a form of godliness. But you know when things go really bad in their lives, they don't really believe it. They don't really believe God loves them. They don't really think God's going to come through for them. They don't really trust God's word. They actually don't go to him. They begin to use everything else, money, other ways of getting out of the problem, rather than going to the Lord first. And that is what Paul describes here, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. You know, you can hold on to a form of piety without having the truth of God's power, and that's fake Christianity, and it's dangerous. It's like having all the trappings but no real life inside of you. Listen, um, Paul's telling Timothy these are the kind of people that are going to come to your church. And in fact, these are some of the people that came out of your church, maybe. It all starts from within. False teachers, 
don't always just come from the outside. Sometimes it's right from within where they begin to twist God's Word. I'm going to read you 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Friends, um, false teachers are sometimes teachers who start out the right way and then go out and become drifters from the truth of the gospel. By the way, I, I read this somewhere this past week. Do you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses actually started out in a right way and then totally wandered off the truth? Started off with good truth and then drifted away from the truth to become a cult, right? Um, I want to go to... I want to go to... Go back and, and remind you something here. What Paul's really warning Timothy and all of us is be, to beware, to be on guard. I, I want to take a moment now to share what we're doing tonight. We're having a hymn sing, right? So we're probably going to do some songs that we love, but we're also going to actually do some hymns. This is really interesting because I was thinking about this a lot this last week. One reason that we still use our hymnal and use the old hymns of the faith, I want you to listen to this. This is important. It's because they don't write songs with this kind of content anymore. Now, some do. I love modern hymn writers. Believe me, I do. But when you read words like this, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle, see his banner go. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. We are reading a theme and an imagery that's forgotten in the church now. Hear me when I say this. We are at war. This is not a joke. We're not playing games. This is deadly. This is serious. The devil wants to kill you. We have an enemy. We're on enemy territory. And there are him after him after him that talk of things like this, right? Martin Luther's uh, great, great hymn, One Little Word Shall Fell Him, right? So many others that are given to us in the old hymnal because they knew that we're at war. We, they, we're in a battle. And this is not something we should be playing around with. So, brothers and sisters, listen. Um, I want you, even when you come tonight, to read the words to the hymns. Because we're in the Lord's army fighting a real battle against the devil himself and those who are working for him to lead us astray by false truths, and it's deadly. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to mention a couple of things about verse 6 and 7 
It actually talks about the tactics that these false teachers do. You know what was happening at that time? These false teachers would go into homes while the men were away, and they would start talking to the women who are housewives and homemakers and begin to do things like, well, I'm coming to pray for you. Um, I know you are sick. And then start just infiltrating the family unit and begin to teach false lies and begin to teach deception. And then it would start. And there was a practice of this. And that's why the Scripture says it that way, avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, as I did previously on a previous passage, I want to remind you, this is not Paul being demeaning towards women because you heard what he said about Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. He thinks these are strong biblical women. He admires them. He loves them. They're godly women. But what he is saying is that this is what was happening at Ephesus and in other churches because the devil and the false teachers find a hook. And here's how they find a hook. It begins with a lack of spiritual discernment and lack of biblical truth and knowledge. Well, it's easy for the devil to get their, his claw into people who don't know the word or have never been discipled and don't understand how to discern. Or those who don't have a sense of purpose or direction in their life. You know, they're not led by a sense of principle that's coming from God's word. They're directionless. Or people who have guilty consciences. You know, there's a lot of unbelievers who have guilty consciences and they want to get out from under their guilt, but they don't know how because they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard how Jesus can free them from their guilt. And then even those who don't question anything, they just take it all in. You know what the opposite of that is? Is when Paul spoke of the Bereans. Do you guys remember that? When Paul spoke of the Bereans? Paul would teach something and the Bereans would say, hold on, let me check what you just said with the Holy Scriptures. Let me see if that's actually true. Even with the Apostle Paul. But then you have others who just take everything. They swallow everything. Well, that's where the devil and false teachers come in and put their claws in and lead astray. The last, very last section, verse 8 and 9, speaks a word of encouragement to us and gives two examples. And I want I wanted to do justice to this by just mentioning it. Who are Janus and Jambres? It's mentioned in the, in the Scripture portion here. These, we believe, from all our understanding of the Scriptures and even studying other things, we understand these to be the magicians or the priests that were in Pharaoh's court when Moses came in to say, the Lord has said, let my people go. And you know what happened? Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. And they throw down his staff and it becomes a serpent. And Moses turns the Nile into blood. And they turn water into blood. But then something happens. It says, these men also oppose the truth Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. 
for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here's my final point that I want you to walk away with in hearing all this warning and asking us to be discerning about falsehood and false teachers. They're not God. They don't have all of God's power. In fact, in the passage that we read, they're doing all these miracles right after Moses doing them. It says there actually was a, a miracle. I think it's the one about the gnats. They couldn't do it. And then they actually say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't reproduce it, Pharaoh. There's a limitation, Pharaoh. We can't do it just like they did, Pharaoh. And my brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, all false teachers are powerless. Yeah, they can do some things. They can do some wonders and signs, but there is a limit to what they can do because they're not God. And they don't display the power of God. And the promise to us, my brothers and sisters, hear this as we leave here, so this is encouraging to you. Those of us who are God's and hold on to His truth and put away falsehood and depart from evil, we will stand as will the church of God to the very end and move from the church militant to the church triumphant. Amen? Here's what the book of Revelation tells us. Jesus wins. And here's what all of the Scriptures promise us. Those who are in Christ will endure and stand to the end and be victorious and have life everlasting. And no matter how dire everything looks now, look, no matter how bad things look now, we will remain and stand because falsehood will be obviously made known to everyone and false teachers' powers will die but God will remain. I want to ask you to think again about those old hymns. Those men were right. Those men and women who wrote those great hymns, they were right. We are in a battle that's going to end up in victory. Lift high the cross. Let this banner be shown to the whole world because we're not going to lose. We're going to win if we trust in Him and hold on to the truth. This is God's word for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you will challenge us to be discerning. Lord, um, Lord we tend to be easily swayed and we tend to forget the truth and to even swallow what's being given us by the world. But Lord, help us not. Just as you warned Timothy, help us to stand for the truth and to stand with you and to be founded on your word forever. Lord, we thank you that you're leading us on in battle. And then one day you're going to come back for us and we're going to be the church triumphant. We thank you for that promise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.